0: Hey, Waves listeners, just before you jump in, I want to make a note that there was an error in a previous version of this episode. We've corrected it. It's later in the episode, as my guest and I are talking about some well-known cases. We've updated the episode to correctly reflect that it was Andrea Yates who murdered her five children. Hello and welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and today a story that complicates so many of our social narratives. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing that we cannot get off of our minds. And today you've got me, Daisy Rosario, Senior Supervising Producer of Audio here at Slate. And I'll be talking to journalist Roxana Asgarian about her new book, We Were Once a Family. You may remember this big news story from 2018. A married white lesbian couple, Jennifer and Sarah Hart, murdered the six black children that they had adopted by driving the family SUV off of a cliff in California. The story gained extra attention when it was discovered that one of the kids killed, Devante Davis, had been in a photo that went viral in 2014. The famous picture was of a crying Devante hugging a police officer at a Black Lives Matter protest in Oregon. In the years since, the story has become well-known among true crime fans. But with her new book, Roxana Asgarian is finally telling the story from the perspectives we usually do not hear. Roxana tells the story of the birth families left behind. The six children themselves came from two different families in Texas. And how these children ended up being adopted out of state in the first place. Now, obviously, the fact that the adoptive women were white and the children were black means that race plays a factor in this story. But I wanted to talk to Roxana here on The Waves because this story also deeply intersects with so many of the other topics we often discuss on a show about feminism and gender. Things like bodily autonomy, issues of mental health and even addiction in women and mothers, how our traumas impact us and change how we live, how we survive and navigate spaces that weren't made for us. Even the popularity of true crime among women and the concept of parents' rights, and what do we mean when we say it? This story touches on all of those things and complicates the popular narratives around each of them. This story has also stayed with me because I grew up alongside over 100 foster kids from the time I was six years old until I was 16. So the particular harsh realities of the child welfare system have always been something that I've made a point to pay attention to. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, I'll be joined by journalist and author of We Were Once a Family, Roxana Asgarian. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out other episodes, too, like last week's that was all about postpartum psychosis. It was a fascinating conversation. Welcome back to The Waves. And now I am joined by journalist Roxana Asgarian. Roxana, welcome to The Waves. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Roxana, I know that you have been reporting on this story for a while. I want to get into how you got involved with it. Because, again, even though we're going to be talking about it in a different framing today, most people that know this story know it through a true crime lens as the murder-suicide Hart family story where the mothers, Sarah and Jennifer Hart, drove their vehicle off of a cliff with their six adopted children inside. It's it's just a, a heartbreaking story. So, yeah, how did you get involved? So, uh,
1: in 2018, um, the crash happened. So this was March 26, 2018. Um, Two white moms drove their six adopted black children off a cliff in California, and everyone died. Um, A couple weeks after that happened, I got a call from my friend Shane, who is a reporter at The Oregonian, And he had a breaking news assignment for me. Um, I was a freelancer at the time, and I lived in Houston. um, And that happened to be the home of the birth family of three of the children. The six children were from two separate family groups. And uh, a couple years before that, I had started to do some stories about foster care. And so I had that kind of lens going into it and... When I sat uh, with the family, I kind of realized just I had a really intense experience um, witnessing the grief that they had just heard the day before. So it was really fresh. Um, They heard from their attorney. So they were kind of wondering what happened. Why didn't anyone call us? Um, They felt really blindsided because they had built up a picture in their heads of what their kids might be experiencing. And this was not that. I just realized there was a lot more to it. And I was seeing a lot of the stories coming out that really minimized or outright disregarded the stories of the birth families. And so that was my kind of founding mission, because to me, it was always a child welfare story. And it felt like a lot of the stories I was seeing about the tragedy were not focused at all on the child welfare system.
0: Everything about this story just kind of doesn't fit neatly into anyone's narrative. For people, the book is broken up into two parts. So the first part kind of really takes you through the whole story as we can understand that it happened at best, I guess, is how I would put it, along with the research and reporting that Roxana did about these systems. And then the second part is where... Roxana, you really enter as a character. I mean, just tell us a little bit more about kind of how you ended up really having to be a character in this larger story.
1: One example would be the birth family of the second three kids. I found them six months after the crash, and I told that family that their kids had died and were murdered. Um, and six months later, they didn't know that and they hadn't heard that. Um So I felt that was a very important piece of the story because there were the things that I was witnessing in the moment uh, about how the families were devalued and just really the lack of humanity and dignity in the treatment of the birth families in the midst of this heinous crime. It was like there was not even an acknowledgement that they were victims here. And I felt that that was a really challenging thing to journalists. We tried to stay out of the story. I felt like there was some transparency that needed to happen because I did have a hand in some things. And also I felt like it was the easiest way to convey the treatment of the families in the present day. And at the end of the um, book, I talk about Driving to South Dakota, which is where the hearts were from, both women were from, and I got some of the ashes of the children from Jennifer's dad and brought them back to the birth families. That was another thing that I kind of like needed to disclose because it felt like it was, it was very important to the sort of grief process of all of the families who were never really connected to each other. Um... Even the heart women, when they were married, they were estranged from their own families. So after their deaths, the two families of the women were struggling to communicate. I think a lot of it ended up being a meditation on grief. And that was a huge experience as someone who has never personally had the experience of a death of a
0: family member. It was very intense and eye-opening for me. The fact that you are the one who has to share with some of these relatives what has actually happened is so striking and not only as a journalist, but I think just as a reader in general, I mean, it really is not what you expect. You know, you were
1: talking earlier about the way that this story complicates a lot of the narratives that we have. And I felt reporting it, that it actually really encapsulated so many of the different problems um, with the child welfare system just by virtue of it being two separate birth families with their own personal struggles and situations. Um, One of the birth mothers is white, and one of them is black. I think there's important differences there in their experiences. Um, The other thing is that it touches on different child welfare systems in different states because we
0: have this patchwork system. Yes, that's right. There's no national system. Let me just say aside, there's no national system. It is all kind of run by states. And even within the states, it's often a mess of kind of what they might have handed over to advocacy groups or religious groups or just private groups and things like that.
1: So for people who would say, oh, Texas is just messed up. It's harder to argue that when you're seeing Texas, you're seeing Minnesota, you're seeing... Oregon. And the most stark thing I think is that you're seeing the disparate treatment of the birth families and the adoptive parents. Like it's so stark and it's so unsettling. It feels like we have a lot of conversations around demographics and disparities and this makes it really clear that there's racism here. That is a major piece of it.
0: One of the women very famously had a tendency to really exaggerate those stories and play into those kinds of ways of seeing like, oh, we've rescued these children, kind of being this white savior, as people have said. Um, And so that is part of it as well, to me, is just that these things bump up against each other and it's not perfectly neat to just say, this always happens to this group or that always happens to this group. When these things meet, one will go one way or the other, and this was just a perfect storm uh, these poor children, um, in this very messy system, that both destroyed their families and managed to protect their abusers aggressively. So, in the book, you talk about things like the fact that these uh, the heart women would take the kids off of medications that they had maybe been on while they had been in foster care before they got to them, and of course, kind of broadly, people just applauded like, oh, you're getting them off of medications," but not talking about whether or not, well, did they need some more than others? Yeah, there wasn't conversation about, oh, isn't this something that they need? It was just seen as a net good that these women were able to get these kids off of medications. And that is one of many examples in the book of something that they were able to kind of parlay into a particular type of understanding.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think um, Dante, the older sibling of three of the kids, meanwhile, as all of this is happening, he's in a institutionalized it's a residential treatment center for kids with high behavioral needs. He was extremely over-medicated and he was never told what was going on. I think that caseworkers saw these moms who were speaking their language and they thought, This is a win. I asked her, like, did you read about this in depth? Because <laughs> It's not the case. It's not what you thought it was. And the caseworker wasn't able to engage with that, even in the face of these kids' murder.
0: We're going to pause for a quick break here. But if you want to hear more from me and Roxana, check out our Waves Plus segment, where today we're talking about what it was like for Roxana to be reporting this story and writing this book while living through a pandemic where she herself was also a first-time mom. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, the new Dear Prudence Advice podcast, and of course, this one. To learn more, go to slate.com forward slash the waves plus. Welcome back. I'm Daisy Rosario and this is The Waves. Today I'm talking to Roxanna Asgarian, journalist and author of We Were Once a Family, a new book that fills out the real story of what has become known among true crime fans as the Hart family murders. In the immediate aftermath of the crime, there were many assumptions that this was merely a tragic accident. Over the years before the murders, Jennifer Hart had cultivated an online following by blogging about their big blended family. There were some people questioning whether their adopted mothers had done it on purpose, but the image of a loving family created by Jennifer in those blog posts proved hard for people to shake in the aftermath of the murders. Let's jump back into my conversation with Roxana where we were talking about this. I think one of the things that you'll quickly see if you look up this story at all is that a inquest found that the women planned to drive off the cliff. We have things that they were googling There's clearly no attempt to break. There's no skid marks, things like that. But if you remember any of this coverage at all, I mean, it very much seemed to be bending over backwards to try to go like, well, how could these two perfect women have done this thing? It was as if everyone like, writing that coverage (laughs) and some of the people taking it in uh, really felt this need to go, no, we must preserve everything that we thought of it before as truth even though the reality of the crime would hopefully make people look at the posts that the women put up about the kids and things like that in a new light. And I know it did for some people. Yeah, for
1: sure. But I do think there was sort of a digging in a little bit. Um, I think that narrative was also put forward by the cops in the inquest itself. They very specifically were like, they must have been so overwhelmed with unnamed pressures I think people have a tendency to relate to the people who are most like them in the story. And that was clearly what was happening in some of this coverage. It's like, if you're going to tuck in to listen to some really terrible thing that really happened to children, (laughs) and in hearing all of that and engaging with all of that, you're going to be thinking wow, well, it must have been really tough for these moms. That's something that I think we as readers and viewers need to sort of confront in ourselves.
0: Well, and it made me think of a couple of things that I just see all the time, right? And like one is fairly recently, there was a murder-suicide where the husband, and oh man, I think this was in Utah, right? I think it was in Utah, where the surviving family wrote a really glowing obituary for this man who had committed a murder suicide of his family. Right. And granted what that surviving family chooses to do, that's up to them, obviously. But I think for good reason, it got a lot of attention online of people going like, why are you glorifying this person? Right. It didn't mention the murder. And then again, everything's relative. Right. We look at that. We see it's terrible. And then you have this where it's like these women murdered kids. But again, there's bending over backwards to try to understand them. Right. Or I think of when I was younger And I believe her name was um, Andrea Yates, the woman who drowned her five children, right? Like vitriol, nothing, nothing but vitriol, just demanding for that woman to be hurt and to pay for it. But again, relative, right? Like it was her own five white children. Like somehow with this combination, the empathy is going towards the perpetrators. Yeah. Well, and in moments
1: of what you just brought up with mothers who kill their children in like a postpartum psychosis, right? We do actually tend to do it the other way, (laughs) where we're like, throw the book at this lady. So it is really interesting to see it play out. In light of the posts, people were simultaneously looking at her posts that we're talking about, my Black children experience racism and kind of going into really private details, right? The first night we had Marcus and he's the behavior that she described of him in his first night in this new place in a different state away from his family. He's old enough to know that he's leaving his family forever, but probably not old enough to realize like what's actually going on To put that kind of stuff out there, and we all sort of say, oh, it must be really tough to parent kids. It's like, sure, but that was a choice. (laughs) That was two separate adoptions. And in the midst of the second adoption, they're getting in trouble for physically harming their kids. At a certain point, we're like, why do we need to defend that? What's so important about defending those women's good intentions?
0: I kept reading about it because, again, I have this connection to foster care in my life that made me kind of look at it differently. But I would imagine that the vast majority of people listening to this right now became aware of this case because of some kind of, quote unquote, true crime coverage that was more looking at it as this salacious story. I really appreciate that you are not just reporting and doing this work to help recenter not just the families, I would say, not just the birth families even, but really the children themselves, but also because of how much true crime becoming this very popular genre seems to have helped with this story only being told a certain way. For
1: sure. And I think because the specifics were so heinous, it fit what the true crime mold is looking for. Um, Writing about the child welfare system is really hard because there's a lot of trauma (laughs) and it felt like a lot of what happens behind the scenes in the child welfare system is just that it's private cases are private and so we hear about it through this very kind of distorted lens and it usually is happens when kids die a harrowing (laughs) abuse situation and that's frustrating because it basically serves to make the child welfare professionals more risk averse (laughs) and the vast vast majority of cases in the child welfare system involve neglect and not abuse first of all and also there's just so many ways that the families that interact with cps are devalued so it just felt like the perfect opportunity to Take a story that everyone was already interested in um, and just go a little deeper with it to kind of hopefully so that people come with a takeaway of, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize this is really how the system worked.
0: You know, a few people have written that we're seeing kind of this increase in this kind of slightly different take on true crime where it's breaking down the systems and getting to the heart of how something worked. I'm wondering what it was like for you as a reporter not only trying to actually build trust and gain the trust of the sources that you would get to know in the process of reporting this story and ultimately writing this book, but also having to do that as that other narrative is the more popular mainstream narrative out there. I mean, what was that experience like? It was frustrating. I won't lie. I think um it kind of helped
1: motivate me, I would say, because the material is so heavy and writing a book makes you go really, really deep, like a lot deeper than what ends up on the page. Um, And that was really challenging emotionally. So I felt a little animated by the anger or frustration that I felt towards the system and also towards the sort of narrative that was taking precedence at that time, Um, just sort of keeping focus that at some point down the road, there would be an account out there that tells this larger story.
0: What really surprised you most about the foster care system as you started learning about it? I think that
1: there's a narrative that we all sort of hear, and particularly that the child welfare system is underfunded and overburdened. And I think in my first story that I actually used those words when I wrote about the child welfare system And uh, I think over time and reporting this book and also reporting lots of child welfare stories in the past few years, it's struck me that uh, there's a really fundamental issue with how we think about parents who are involved with CPS. So there's a stigma There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of shaming on the part of caseworkers. I think why the child welfare system, like you said, it's ignored, but it's so interconnected with so many other problems. Because if you are involved with the child welfare system, you are marginalized in some way. Whether it be drug use, there's drug policy, uh, housing instability, housing crisis, uh, immigration status, um, intimate partner violence, poverty, obviously. These things are like the major drivers, CPS. And so when we separate it as if it's a siloed thing, we're missing the point, And we're also continuing this sort of punitive approach. When we have all this research that shows Kids do best with their parents. And if they can't be with their parents, they do best with their family members. We know that. But yeah, we make it so hard. (laughs) We really make it really hard. And it feels like we're doing that because we want to punish people. And if we're trying to punish the parents and we're harming the children, the children who need extra help, extra attention and support, they're getting pulled out of their communities. They're getting dropped in institutions they're not able to contact their siblings. This is really awful. The whole way that we approach this
0: is wrong, and it's not working. Yeah, any of us would know this, like, hey, if you completely cut me off from like, the only people I've ever loved and known, even if they're not necessarily the healthiest for me, but even in that setting, and I say this as someone who grew up with a father who was addicted to drugs, there were times where I could see him, there were times where I could not see him. You know, in general, we just went through this pandemic people are stuck at home it's hard to be isolated we understand that idea that people need connection and to be known and to be loved and then we will just immediately look directly at that and go oh we're going to take these kids away we're going to completely cut them off this is the right way to do it it just in a very common sense way in and of itself doesn't really make any sense which again
1: puts the behavior on the kid so they mention a lot they have eating issues they will eat things out of the garbage, or they'll gorge themselves. It's like, that's a common trauma response for children who don't have really any control over their environment. Restricting their food in that scenario is only further traumatizing to them and also damaging. The kids are malnourished and too small. So then to turn around and say, oh, it's their food issues. There's a lot of ways that this story shows that we put a lot on kids that is not in any way in their ability or capacity to handle.
0: When I hear about any major legislation, with everything we have going on in Florida, for example, and they frame it around parents' rights, something that always just feels so forgotten to me is what happens when kids are legitimately in abusive situations and how do we support them and, and what they need. And um, part of what is so extra maddening about the stories of this family is that these children, when they ended up in this foster care system, they were not in abusive situations,
1: right? They were in unstable situations, you know?
0: Yeah. Unstable and, and... for sure. Yeah. But tell us a little bit about the the birth families and, and kind of how. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the Davis family, that's
1: Devonte and his siblings. Um, their mom struggled with a cocaine addiction and um, they had a father figure who wasn't their biological dad, but who was there since their birth, all of them, and who was a very stable guy. It's just that the child welfare system didn't understand the relationship that, um, that Sherry and Nathaniel had. And so I think they were like, he's not the bio dad. And I think bio dads have a hard time anyway in the child welfare system. Um, So that was them. And then Tammy, Sherrick, uh, her kids, Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail. Tammy struggled with mental illness and um, she just sort of lacked steady support. I think both families lacked steady support. And I think that's kind of the key is that there are foster parents that are really good and supportive. And most of those do understand that people come from their families and they, they can be a stable person. They can care. They can be mom if you want them to be mom, right? Because some kids do, but it's like, but it's understanding that where they come from is part of them, just as everybody has that experience. And in cases like with the heart women, where they're constantly talking about the terrible things that the kids experienced in front of them, that's really harmful psychologically. And that's the thing that adoptive parents sometimes struggle with, that is, this kid comes from a family, and that there doesn't need to be a total separation to love and care for. kid. I do want to point out there's a lot of people who are trying really hard to do right for these kids. And once they age out and beyond, because they do lack a support system and they lack the things that people who grow up within their own families just take for granted. (laughs) particularly at the age when you were going through puberty or when you were graduating high school. These are times that the feelings and experiences that you have as a child imprint on you, and they're so intense. You experience life really intensely as a child. I think there is a conversation about parents' rights that is weirdly not the one that we're having, about like, you know, that they're really, that parents should have Like the ability, and we're talking about parents, marginalized parents should have the ability to parent their kids, right? I mean, it's really interesting to see this play out. I think the right tends to do this thing where they just take an idea or a concept that's really important and then just dismantles it so it makes no sense anymore. Like the groomers thing, (laughs) that's one. So this parents rights thing, it's like, what are we even talking about? Children have rights. Children are human beings who are marginalized by the fact of not having the ability to do things for themselves. It's a very difficult process for a kid who's in a bad situation to get in a better place. Um, But we, you know, removing kids from their communities with the teachers that love them and the, the aunts and uncles, we're taking away connections that they can securely attach to. And I wanted that to be sort of clear in the book that the way that we fuck kids up (laughs) affects them their whole lives and everyone they come into contact with. And there's a huge overlap between foster care experience and incarceration. It's a very huge uh, Venn diagram there, right? And it's something that we're not giving kids what they need to be able to be okay and
0: happy. I'd like to thank Roxana Asgarian again for joining me today. Her book, We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America is available now. As much as it's an incredibly difficult story, I can also say that it's a very good read. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth and Tori Dominguez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place.